As Alan mentioned, we are in a series about questions that skeptics ask, kind of roadblocks for some people to Christianity. You know, uh, nowadays, anytime we have a question, we just ask Google or Siri, right? I kind of miss the old days when we were just content not knowing things, you know? Somebody would ask a question, I don't know, I don't know, and we just went about our business, right, you know? But nowadays, somebody's going to pull out their phone, you know, and look up an answer or ask Siri. And so we do our Google search, we ask Siri, and we expect a quick and simple answer. But uh, the question we want to deal with today is a little more complex than that. The question we want to deal with today is this. If there is a good God, then why is there evil and all this suffering in our world? And the reason why it's not just a quick, simple answer to that is because there's multiple aspects to the answer to this question. And so that's what we want to deal with this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to reach inside your worship folder and pull out these message notes. We're going to look at a lot of verses, and uh, they're there for you as well as they'll be on the screens here. There's also some uh, places where you can fill in some blanks if you care to do so, a little bit of white space if you want to write something else in there. But here's the first aspect in dealing with this question is just this. That this question of if there's a good God, then why is there evil and suffering? This question starts with a bad assumption. And that assumption is this. Well, of course, a good God's top priority would be our comfort and our happiness, right? You know, that was Job's wrong assumption in the Old Testament book of Job that led him to wrong conclusions. You know, what we learn from the book of Job is that there are other factors involved than just what we are aware of. In the book of Job, the devil comes to God and he says, you know, Job only served you because you're so good to him. You've blessed him so abundantly. That's the only reason. You take that stuff away, he's not going to serve you. And so, as a result of that conversation between God and the evil one, there is unleashed this series of unimaginable events. Death and tragedy and loss. And some of us are uncomfortable with all these awful things happening to such a good, upright person. And that's because we've mistakenly bought the lie that God's top priority should be our comfort and happiness. We think that the universe is supposed to work on some sort of karma plan. And God's role is just to sort of deal out the good or the bad things accordingly. Now the biggest problem with thinking that way is that according to the Bible, none of us are good. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. And so if we get what we deserve, it would be immediate desolation and eternal suffering in hell for all of us. So the last thing I want is what I deserve. But God does what God does, 
And he doesn't answer to us or anybody else. In fact, we answer to him. Isn't that right? Now, God's not put off by our questions. In fact, I find it very interesting that in the book of Job that God doesn't respond to Job's questioning until Job starts to put some demands on God. It isn't until Job starts saying, in effect, God, you owe me better than what I'm getting, that God has something to say to Job. And in essence, what Job, what God responds to Job is, is saying to him, you know, when I created all of this, I don't remember seeing you. You know, where were you? I was looking for you, but where you you uh, supposed to know it all. In fact, look with me. That's that first passage there in your notes. Job chapter 38. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Hey, who is this that's talking that doesn't know what he's talking about? You know, who's this that's pulling this information out of his left ear because it's not going through his brain? He doesn't know. See, brace yourself like a man, God says. I will question you. Hey, you've got all these questions for me. Let me question you, and you shall answer me. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And what God does in the next couple of chapters is he just unleashes question after question after question for Job, so much so that when we get to chapter 40, verse 2, it kind of wraps up and says, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Hey, are you going to correct me? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Everything I've said is so stupid, I don't want to say anymore. I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. You see, we don't know everything. Only God does. And that's why we answer to him, and he doesn't answer to us. You know, several years ago, our family followed God's leading, and as a result of that, we suffered just great grief. I remember praying during that time, God, I left this, and I did this, and I obeyed you, and you should do better than this for me. I remember preaching a sermon during that time called, What do you do when you're where you don't want to be? I took it out of the Babylonian captivity when God's people got carried off to Babylon. They didn't want to be there, and I felt like I didn't want to be where I was. And I spent eight hard years, and at the end of it all, I was let go from my job. And what I learned from that is that God does what he chooses to do. And we answer to him he doesn't answer to us. 
And that God is more concerned with his glory than he is with our comfort and happiness. Now, now don't get me wrong. God loves us. And, and he desires good things for his children. And so much of the time, blessings come from obedient living. But our pleasure, our happiness, is not God's main objective. And we start off our examination of this question with a bad assumption if we think it is. You see, God's main agenda is and always has been his own glory. But, but we have this tendency to kind of think of ourselves as the star of this movie that's kind of going on around us, you know? You know, uh, if you're watching a movie and something happens to the main star, the main actor, the main actress early on, you're like, oh my gosh, that can't, that can't happen to them. They're the star. Now, meanwhile, all kinds of minor characters are getting knocked off hand over fist, right? We don't think anything of it. It's because we're focused on the star, right? Well, here's what happens to us too often is we get bothered because we keep mistakenly thinking this movie, this thing that's going on around us is about us. But you see, God is the star. The movie is about him. And it's all for his glory. We're just bit part actors that don't even get mentioned in the credits at the end. And that change of perspective, I think, makes all the difference in the world. Let me illustrate it from, from Jesus' life. John chapter 11, it's a story that maybe you're familiar with. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and this Mary, whose brother, that Lazarus, her, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love, is sick. And when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. You may want to circle that part. It's for God's glory. Everything is for God's glory. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 5 Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Mary. I mean, his sister Mary and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. You might want to circle that part too. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, if you know the rest of the story, Lazarus died. But Jesus does arrive, and when Jesus does arrive, 
he raises Lazarus back to life. But I don't want you to miss this part of the story. Because you see, if Jesus' top priority would have been Mary and Martha's comfort and happiness, he would have never handled things the way he did, would have he? I mean, he stayed there two more entire days. And as a result of that, he put them through a lot of grief. A lot of pain. I mean, why in the world would he do that to people that he loved? Well, the answer is right there in verse 4. He says, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Over and over again in the Bible, we see that God's top priority is his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, starting in verse 9, says this, For my own name's sake, God speaking, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you Though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to anyone else. We we see in Isaiah 43 that we were created, all of us, were created for God's glory. It says there, end of verse 6, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? For my glory, God says, whom I formed and made. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, why did he do that? He did it for his glory. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 7, says, When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. And he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the depths as through a desert. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says that God is all about his glory being extended through the entire earth. Habakkuk 2 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, I think we misunderstand so much. We get confused so often because we assume wrongly. We assume that it's about us. But it's not about us. It's about God's glory. Well, aspect number two that comes into answering this is also important. And it's this aspect. That we have to remember that we live in a broken, fallen world. Where sin brings about pain and death and hurt. 
and sadness and all sorts of things that don't seem fair. And that goes back to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2. The entrance of sin and with it all of these negative results. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5 where he says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, through Adam's sin, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people (coughs) because all sinned. And to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Vance Pittman explains it this way. He says, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they unleashed sickness and death into the world. And no area of life escaped the effects of their fall into sin. You see, why is there pain? because we live in a broken, fallen world. Why is there cancer? It's because we live in a broken, fallen world. Why is there abuse? And why is there death? And why is there suffering and evil? They are the consequences of living in a world that is broken due to sin. Why does a madman unleash death on innocent people at a concert in Las Vegas. It's because we live in a world that is broken because of the entrance of sin into it. And I think many of us get that. But we still expect somehow the world to be fair. You know, kind of like if I sin, then sure, I should reap the bad consequences for sin. But that's not how sin works. That's karma. Again, we've already said there's no such thing as karma. Job's friends, they thought this exact same thing. In fact, if you read the book of Job in the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to do so. They kept pounding Job, kind of saying this, hey, you must have done something bad to bring all this bad stuff on yourself. But you see, that's not how sin works exactly. Jesus, I think, makes this point in John chapter 9. It says, as he went along, he saw a a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they thought this way too. Hey, this guy's suffering the negative consequences of sin. He must have brought that upon himself or maybe a generation back, his parents. So which was it, Jesus? And Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's that God's glory thing again. But see, the point Jesus made before that is that sin doesn't work exclusively 
It's that much of what we all experience in this world is due to other people's sin and just the existence of sin around us in general. Years ago, I had a friend who was killed by a drunk driver. The driver walked away without a scratch. One guy smokes his whole life without any negative effects, while another never touches a cigarette and gets cancer. An abuser inflicts his consequences onto an innocent, doesn't he? A baby, an innocent baby, is born with a birth defect. Why is all of that? See, it's because we live in a broken fallen world that because of sin isn't fair Romans chapter 8 again Paul is talking about this broken fallen world that we live in and he says this verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not, not just people, but all of God's creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So for in this hope, we were saved, but we hope, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, and we wait for it patiently. You see, friends, the way things currently are, where sin has its awful effect, that was never God's plan. God created the world perfect. But sin entered into the picture. And the story of the Bible is God's unfolding plan to redeem his creation. In Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in our Bibles shows us that that there will be this time in our future when those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will again live in the majesty of his sinless creation. But you see, friends, we aren't there yet. And I think that's the third aspect in answering this question, is that we have to recognize where we are in the unfolding story. See, let me give you 
a real simple, my real simple outline of the Bible. Are you ready? I think you can understand the Bible this way. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the very first two uh, chapters in your Bible, God creates everything perfect. But Genesis chapter 3 through verse 11, sin enters. And as a result, it has its impact on all of creation. So that in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to Revelation chapter 20, is God's unfolding plan of redemption. That's the story. You see, God calls a man, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, through whom he will create a people to be his own and bring about a line with which he can bring his son into the world. And then Jesus does come as the long-promised Messiah, and he dies to pay the price to buy his creation back. And God's kingdom begins. Jesus said he came proclaiming the kingdom is right here at the end of the tips of my fingers. The kingdom is at hand, he says. And he establishes his kingdom and he offers uh, all of us the opportunity to be his chosen people. It is extended to anyone who would receive Jesus' shed blood as the payment for their sin. And his kingdom extends and continues to extend until he will return and fully and finally establish the full extent of that kingdom on earth. When sin will be dealt with once and for all and the devil banished so that Revelation 21 and 22 creation will be completely restored. It will be redeemed. And Jesus will wipe away every tear. And death and pain and suffering and evil and all the consequences of sin will be gone. And those of us who have bowed our knee to Jesus as our Savior will live in the perfection and paradise of God's fully established kingdom forever. So why is there pain and evil and suffering now? Well, you've got to know where we are in the story. Yes, Jesus has paid the price on the cross. Yes, he has established his kingdom and extends the offer to anyone to enter into it. If you'll believe through the shed blood of his son, yes, he's established the kingdom. He's in the process of redeeming, of fully establishing everything, but it's not fully, it's not finally. The redemption's not complete yet. So you have to know where you are in the story. And let me kind of explain it in a way that maybe it'll make sense to you. Let's say you're watching a movie and you're 30 minutes into it. And Liam Neeson's daughter has been kid kidnapped by the terrorists. But are we worried 30 minutes in? No, it's just a half an hour. We know that he has a unique set of skills that he's going to use that by the end of the story, to rescue her. See, it's hour 18, and the country is in all sorts of troubles, but we aren't worried, 
because we know Jack Bauer has six more hours to straighten it all out and to save the world. You see, mankind appears to be in desperate straits. The empire is building a Death Star. And Princess Leah has sent a message on a drone to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And we're not worried, right? Because we know that the force will save the day. But oh no, the empire strikes back. But are we worried? No, because we know there will be a return of the Jedi. Here's the point I'm making in a silly kind of way. Is that you have to know where you are in the story to make sense out of what is going on. You see, we haven't gotten to Revelation 21 and 22 yet. But it's coming. God has already sent the Messiah who paid the price to defeat sin, the Lamb of God in our place, shedding his blood to erase our sin. God's already paid the price. He's established his kingdom and called citizens into it. And he appeals to us to become citizens of that kingdom through Jesus' shed blood. And he appeals to us, once we have become citizens, to join him in the effort to push back the impact of sin in the world around us and to recruit others to join that kingdom, not just sitting around waiting till Jesus comes. But we know he's coming. And we wait with hope for that day. And so my question for you this morning is this. First of all, are you a citizen of that kingdom? Have you received the shed blood of Jesus to pay the price for your sin? If you haven't, you can do that today, right now. Before you even leave this room, to ask Jesus to, to let you into God's kingdom as a result of the price that he paid for you and to surrender to him on the basis of the cross. If you, like many of us, have done that, you're sure that you've done that, my question for you is this Are you busy for the kingdom? Or have you gotten all caught up in the concerns of a different kingdom? So why is there all this evil and suffering? It's because we live in a broken, fallen world. That God is in the process of redeeming. But he's still on his throne. And he's working it all out. For his glory in the meanwhile, even though at points I don't understand it, that's okay. I don't have to. I just have to trust him. Even though at points 
I don't like what he's doing. <laughs> That's okay. I don't have to. I just have to trust him. Because I know that Revelation 21 and 22 is coming. Well, pray with me, would you? Lord Jesus, I just want to pray for different ones of us in the room right now. Lord, I'm just very aware that how you hear a message like this can, can be dependent upon a lot of things about where you are. So I want to pray first for the man or woman who is sitting here. And you know what? They are just in the midst of such junk right now that it's hard for them to even wrestle with the factual realities of all of this. God, I just pray that you would give them grace. Lord, meet them in the midst of that. Help them know that, that, that it's okay. They don't have to put it all together. It doesn't have to make nice, neat sense to them. They just need to call out and cling and trust to you, God. Give them the grace to do that. God, I'm going to pray for the person who's here. And you know, they, maybe they're just not real sure that they've ever really come to the cross and surrendered themselves to you on the basis of what you did, Jesus, in shedding your blood for them. Lord, I pray that you will give them the faith to say, God, I, I'm not sure I understand it all, but I understand this. I'm sinful. You're holy. You died in my place. I want to receive that. I want to come into your kingdom. I want to be a citizen on the basis of the offer that you make to me because you died for me on the cross. God, give them the faith to take that step this morning. And then, God, just for all the rest of us, God, we, we live out the frustrations in a creation that's groaning, in a creation that's suffering the consequences of sin. We experience it every day. So help us, Lord, as citizens of your kingdom, to be about the business of your kingdom above the business of all the other opportunities all around us. To be about the business of pushing back the impact of sin in our world. Being agents for good, of righteousness. And being concerned with the people around us, offering them the opportunity to become citizens of this kingdom too. God, help us all as we, in this decaying, struggling, groaning world, to live for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.